Hello, you're listening to the Let's Talk Future podcast series presented by Oppenheimer. If you're interested in the economy, markets, and investing in general, you've come to the right place. This series was created to fascinate and enlighten every type of investor. Curious about the latest consumer trends? How about innovations in healthcare or technology? The Let's Talk Future series definitely has you covered. Through timely and relevant conversations, we deliver some of the best thought leadership in the financial services industry. Our renowned hosts and guests explore big questions and big ideas and leave you with actionable insights. In this episode, our featured guest is Fred Larson, Managing Director and Head of Oppenheimer's Transportation and Logistics Investment Banking Team. And our host is Jane Ross, Managing Director of Investment Banking at Oppenheimer. This episode was recorded on July 25th, 2023. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to our episode called The Great Supply Chain Reversal. I'm your host, Jane Ross, and we're here with Fred Larson, the Managing Director who heads Oppenheimer's Transportation and Logistics investment banking team. Fred and I did an episode early in COVID when problems in the global supply chain were a big, big topic. Now we have major changes on the other side. The largest U.S. trucking company, Yellow, has signaled their intention to file for bankruptcy as of this recording. The airlines are having a manic summer with super strong bookings but rampant and significant flight delays due to weather, but also logistical issues. The Inflation Reduction Act passed with major implications for Fred's companies and the U.S. economy. So here we are. And let's go. Welcome back, Fred Larson. Thank you, Jane Ross. It's great to be back. I was looking at my notes and we last spoke a little over three years ago. It seems like an eternity. It was a different world. So I'm going to ask you to bring us up to date, which is pretty broad. But if you could bring us up to date on some of like the big thematic things that have changed for your space since we last spoke. The big theme that we start with is that the pandemic is still having major ripple effects in my space. It was such a massive disruption to global supply chains, and it was unusual because it happened all at once everywhere, which messed things up royally and made it very, very difficult for people to recover from. And so there was a lot of volatility well through the pandemic, extending into 2021 and 2022, where transportation providers, transportation users were trying to adjust and adapt. You had many manufacturers and retailers who were panicking that they didn't have enough materials and goods to sell to consumers during the pandemic. So they tended to overreact in the other direction and stock a lot more inventory in their supply chains. But unfortunately, when consumer spending slowed down, that meant that they now had overstuffed warehouses and were able to ship less and sell less and so forth. So you've had a quite a lot of volatility, which is reflected most directly in the transportation market in the freight shipping rates across the different modes. And we've seen a lot of volatility in those spaces. One of the most dramatic ones was what happened in ocean shipping. When you think about the containers that get moved across the ocean from Asia to the U.S. and Europe to the U.S. and vice versa, it's a huge global trade. And it's the vast bulk in terms of volume of actual goods that gets moved by transportation around the world. For many years and right up until the beginning of the pandemic, the typical rate for container to be shipped across the ocean was about $2,000 by the time of, and that was uh, all the way up until May of 2020, it was actually trading below $2,000. 
By 2021, actually in September, it had climbed to over $10,000 to ship a container across the ocean. So five times, more than five times increase. Massive, massive change in, in volatility. Uh, and then in 2022, in March, it began falling at a steady rate. And now it's actually back down to under $2,000. So that's a tremendous volatility. The beneficiaries of that, of course, in the transportation space were the big ocean-going shipping companies, the Maersks of the world, the CMA CGMs, the Hapag Lloyds, those kinds of companies, which typically trade on the European markets, not here. But they all made so much money. They made more money in that period of time, about a year, year and a half, than I think they had made in the decades before that. And they're sitting on huge amounts of cash that they're now using, in fact, to try and differentiate or diversify across the space. So the ocean shipping rates are a very good example of how volatility hit the space. It went, spiked it up really high, and now it's come back really far back down, almost to normal in many ways, if not slightly below normal. And you see the same thing in trucking markets. You see the same things in warehouse servicing markets. You see things all across the supply chain where the similar kind of behavior has happened. And we'll get to it later, but you're seeing an analogous spike in terms of demand, although on a lagged basis in the passenger aviation market. Okay. So, and I know another thing that we talked about in our last episode was about supply chains being engineered for perfection. And that was a real risk to the system. So we've seen now an attempt to diversify into other geographies, right? That's That's been ongoing. Very much so, yes. What happened, as we discussed, was the manufacturers and shippers of the global supply chains realized they had over-optimized their supply chains. They had too much single sourcing far away, uh, mostly in China, because uh, the lowest cost of manufacturing uh, was still mostly in China for most companies. And that required very long extended supply chains and made them very fragile. So they were easy to break and they did break in the pandemic, and they were very hard to repair. So what manufacturers and retailers who do have global supply chains have been doing ever since has been diversifying their supply chain. They've been nearshoring. They've been bringing manufacturing closer to shore, closer to their destination, to consumer markets. They've been onshoring. They've been multi-sourcing. So instead of having one supplier, let's say in Shenzhen province, they're going to have three or four scattered around Asia, maybe even Mexico or even Europe, parts of Eastern Europe. So you've seen quite a bit of diversity. There's, that has direct effects as well on the freight movements and the freight markets. And one of the interesting things, one of the nice and, and well-performing parts of the supply chain right now, if you're in the transportation business, is actually the Mexican market. Mexico, frankly, is on fire. All those maquilladoras that were built around the time of you know, the original building of the maquilladoras down there are being reactivated, are being built on to improved, upgraded, and filled with manufacturing. So you're seeing a great deal of cross-border transportation in Mexico right now, and that's reflecting in the bottom lines of the companies that serve it. Okay. So we're building a little bit of a constructive base here. We have pricing kind of reverting back to normal, but more predictable now because we have that data. We have some geographic diversity. You know, another issue that I cannot do an episode without referencing is AI and technology. And I know predictive AI is very pertinent for your companies. So that's something that's happening too. Absolutely. Yes. The change in the technology market and technology impact on transportation has been quite dramatic as we've seen change in the technology market 
market across the entire industry and economy. What's happened in, in transportation is that there's been continued technological innovation across the board. A lot of companies have been working directly and or indirectly on both artificial intelligence, machine learning, predictive analytics, data mining, all, call it what you will. It all sort of combines into a way to essentially create very sophisticated tools to try and predict where the demand is coming from next, as well as how you should manage the transportation of goods and services to your consumers. So it's continued to be a very important part of the market. And if anything, you're seeing some strength in that sector, whereas in, let's say, other parts of the technology market that serve consumer set spaces or other spaces, there might be weakness. And, and that could be a bit of a margin enhancer or a cost optimizer, right? So that's interesting. Okay, another big theme, got to bring up the Inflation Reduction Act. That passed. I think money is starting to flow out there that, you know, there's big implications for your companies. So spend a couple of minutes on that. Who's going to benefit? Stuff like that. Yeah, well, the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, was pretty amazing um, uh, thing. And what's interesting it is it's not the only one. It's one of actually three major spending bills that Congress and the president have put into, into work in the last few years. And over the next 10 years, they combine to over $2 trillion of government spending, subsidies, and support to you know, various infrastructure and infrastructure-oriented expenditures. Uh, when it impacts on transportation, obviously, building infrastructure, building roads, building bridges, building all those kinds of things, direct impact on the efficiency and the operating abilities of transportation companies. It's also a lot of indirect things. One of the interesting uh, provisions in the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, was the implementation of direct support and incentives for electric vehicles, which of course we all know is a major and growing trend in this country, certainly is in many other countries as well. And I think we should continue to see a lot of activity in that space. Right. Okay. Well, let's let's delve to some of the specific industry players. And I think I got to start with the airlines having personally had the pleasure of experiencing a significant delay this summer. You know, I referenced the airlines having a manic summer, but what is going on there? A lot of interesting cross currents, Jane. I think that um, what you're seeing uh, on the demand side is very interesting. People are calling this a season of quote unquote revenge travel. People who were cooped up for years indoors, you know, with their you know close friends and family and nobody else are tired of it and are now out pounding the pavement, hopping on planes, going all over the place. And um, particularly international travel, but as well domestic travel, air travel has been enormously increased. The number of people flying is huge. I don't know whether it's a record, but it's awfully high and it's higher than it was pre-pandemic for sure. There was an interesting anecdote I heard. There is actually an Italian town, tourist town uh, called Portofino. And apparently the tourists are so crowding the town that the police are fining any tourist who takes a selfie and blocks pedestrian traffic. So that gives you a kind of idea as to the insanity that's out there. I travel on business and for pleasure, and the airlines, airplanes, and the airports have never been in this full in, a, in recent memory. I can't believe it, uh, how many people are out there. So the demand itself puts a lot of strain on the air travel system. But let's not forget as well, that the labor markets are very tight. 
right? That's a good thing. Unemployment is down. Uh, most people have jobs who want them. Uh, if anything, the rate, um, prices and wages are going up, so they have more money to spend. Maybe that makes them want to travel more. But that also means it's harder to find workers. And airlines depend not only on the pilots and the flight attendants, of course, but on all the gate personnel, support personnel, maintenance personnel, and so forth. And those people are harder to find. And when you don't have the right kind of staffing support for airlines that are facing huge volume demands, huge consumer demands for more travel, things are going to break. Then, just to make it more fun, layer in on top of that the extreme weather we've been having this summer across the country and across most parts of the world. Extreme weather is very difficult to operate in for any, any airline, and you're seeing weather delays and you know, all kinds of delays falling out of that. So it's really, in many respects, a perfect storm. Yeah. And what do you think that translates to in terms of deal activity or that there's been some m and I, I saw that the American JetBlue agreement was done away with. You know, you, you do a lot of M&A business. Do you think that that's going to be something ahead? I think, I think the passenger airline M&A business will probably be relatively quiet. I mean, for one thing, it is, um, you know, it is an area that the government antitrust authorities scrutinize very, very heavily because it's so consumer facing. Certainly the stories you and I have just now been talking about that I think everybody we know has been suffering uh, trying to travel by air. These stories get backed into Washington to the politicians, many of whom are trying to travel themselves. And there's very little sympathy for airlines who then say, oh, we want to combine and reduce our expenses by cutting planes and people. Uh, so I think airline M&A, at least in the U.S., is going to be a, a quiet sector. The interesting question for me is, is how long does this period of revenge travel last? In fact, because we've seen those kinds of waves, right? We saw waves during the pandemic where people, of course, because they had to, they ordered food in and they cooked at home and they stayed home. And then when that opened up, they all went out to restaurants again in huge numbers. Is that rebalancing? I think it is. So you might want to think that, you know, passenger travel, air travel might rebalance a little bit away from this revenge travel. You know, that being said, uh, it's been a long time and people are still trying to fly and they're paying higher prices than Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't feel like it's abating anytime soon. Okay, so what about the logistics companies? Those are the asset light players. And, you know, when you talk about globalization and e-commerce, those are the players that really are in the middle of all of that, right? What are you seeing there? Well, I think there's. it's a very interesting time uh, in the market for them. When you look at transportation, you can sort of cut it in, in two ways. One are the asset light logistics players that you just mentioned. The other ones are the asset owning carriers, if you will. Uh, we mentioned the shipping companies earlier, the Maersks and, and Hapag Lloyds who own their own ships, huge capital investments they've got to keep working and so forth. There are publicly traded trucking companies in North America that own their own fleets of trucks and tractors. And those are, you know, have been struggling with the volatility in this kind of up and down market. It's very difficult to consistently make money where, when you're an asset player. When you're an asset light logistics player, though, and there are lots of different flavors to that, which I'll get into in a second, you're much more like, you're not really the wave of the ocean moving up and down, you're the cork on top. So you're sort of floating, you're a middleman who is charging a commission effectively to connect a shipper who has stuff to move with a carrier who has something to move it on. 
And therefore, the volatility of your margins tends to be less volatile than an asset player. It's a very interesting model. If you can build scale in that space, like certain selected people have done, uh, it becomes a very predictable and a very high free cash flow model. So it's a very attractive investment thesis for a lot of people. And you see the examples in, in the U.S. market, some of the biggest names here, C.H. Robinson is a truck brokerage business, which is effectively means they don't own any trucks. They just connect people who have got stuff to move by trucks with the trucking owners who have the trucks to move it. And they've grown to an extremely impressive size and have done very well for themselves. On the international forwarding side, you've got companies like Expeditors International, which arrange air freight and sea freight forwarding in the same way. They don't own any planes. They don't own any ships. They contract with the plane owners and the ship owners to move goods for their customers, and they do very well as well. So there are definitely some interesting players out there in the market that are exposed to this transportation activity and the growth in transportation who don't necessarily have the asset exposure. Right. And speaking of the asset exposure, um, we now have the pending news on, on yellow and, you know, 30,000 jobs, it sounds like, could be eliminated. So let, let's talk about what's happened there with the asset-based trucking companies. Yes, I think Yellow is an interesting case because Yellow has been the sick man of the trucking industry for quite a long time. So I think its bankruptcy is not really a story about the health of the trucking market, although the health is weaker than it was. We'll, and I'll come back to that. It's really a matter of here was a company that under its previous leadership had gone about buying and, and consolidating its asset-based trucking operations across the market for a long time, it became the largest operator in the less than truckload spaces. And they're a unionized player. They bought roadway transportation, another unionized player. Then they never combined the two assets, the two businesses together for the longest time. And they just had ridiculous expense levels compared to their ability to charge money for their services, which, of course, yes, and debt and lots of debt that they had added on. The U.S. government actually gave them a $700 million loan during COVID, which um, apparently is getting scrutiny because it was done in a little bit too quickly without enough analysis. Uh, but that didn't help them either. They just couldn't do it. Their service deteriorated. Their customers stopped being willing to pay them good rates for, the, for their service because it wasn't good service. And so it was a downward spiral that they just ended up collapsing under. Being a less than truckload carrier, however, is not actually a recipe for disaster. A very good contrast is Old Dominion Freight Lines, which is a remarkable non-unionized, less than truckload carrier. It started out as a regional uh, Southeast player. It's grown across the country, and it is now trading at 23 times its trailing EBITDA, or operating cash flow, which is a ridiculous number. It's actually higher than most of the non-asset-based logistics companies out. So you can be very successful in that market if you follow up the right kind of operating plan and you build the right kind of service reputation. Okay, so yellow is sounds pretty much unto themselves. So what we like to do on Let's Talk Future is to talk future. So when we look at your companies, and I think that the transports used to be a good indicator, a recession indicator, can you take all of this 
and apply to what you think that brings us to in the next 18 months for these companies and for the economy and all of that? Yes. So I think what's going to happen from what I see from my perch is that transportation does tend to be a pretty good leading or coincident indicator of economic recovery. So right now, we're in a period where we're digesting a lot of freight declines, a lot of volume declines, rate declines, et cetera. The biggest companies that are the well-capitalized ones are tightening their belts. They're definitely feeling the bite, but they're also strong enough to survive you know, the downturn in margins and the downturn in volumes. And those t- companies tend to come out of these cycles stronger. In fact, if anything, it's the weaker players. Yellow is a, a very large and sort of unusual example, but a very good example of how weaker players tend to get winnowed out when you have market downturns in transportation. So the big guys are going to come out of this stronger. The transportation and need to transport stuff isn't going away anytime soon. We continue to move physical goods all over the world all the time. That's not changing until someone invents a transporter like Star Trek, which I don't see on the horizon. But I'll let you know if I hear about it, because that would be cool. But um, you know, I think that there's uh, the view that I speak to executives out there and investors in this space is that 2023 is going to be probably the second half, a period of digestion of current levels in the marketplace. People are getting normalized, they're normalizing their cost base, and they're positioning themselves for a return to a good market or a recovering market in 2024. Nice. Well, I think we've done it. We've, we've covered the past three years and, and we've gone ahead into the future. Is there anything that I missed? Anything else that you wanted to throw out there or did we cover it? Well, I would just say that, you know, if there's anything to keep your eye on in the future, and we sort of talked about it, one or two of these things already, but it's, it doesn't hurt to reemphasize. I would say the technology application to transportation, and it's not always coming from technology companies, by the way. Some of the transportation companies themselves are investing in a lot of very advanced technology to improve their operations. But we've already talked about predictive, real-time analytics. That's going to be increasingly important. Customers want to know where their goods are at all times. They want to be able to direct them if they need to. Uh, another area we haven't spoken about, though, is warehouse automation. That's a pretty exciting area where there's some really interesting robotics companies out there, almost all of which are private at the moment, but some of which are probably pretty good IPO candidates down the road. A good example, that would be Locus Robotics, which makes pretty interesting robots that help warehouse workers essentially do e-commerce fulfillment, among many other things. And what's interesting about warehouse automation is that approximately only 5% of the warehouses in the world are actually automated. So there's a huge untapped market. Warehouse automation helps not only with efficiency and with costs, but it reduces labor demand for warehousing, which we know is a problem right now and should be a problem in the future. And so I think that's an area that is exciting when I look forward to it. That's great. Well, Fred, such a pleasure to have you back. I hope it's not three years from now that we do it again. And thank you for sharing your expertise. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. And thank you, Jane. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Future. We know your podcast listening options are endless, so we're glad you're spending time with us. Don't miss out on our next episode. And remember to subscribe today. Join our community to expand your thoughts on business, the markets, and the dynamic forces affecting them. It's time to talk future.